This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and joining me is a blast from the past and a semi-regular fixture on uh, Primitive Culture here. Uh, I think we can fairly say he's objectively one of our favourite guests on this show these days. It's Tony Black. How are you, Tony? I'm very well, Duncan. Thank you. Objectively is an interesting word there, I think, you know, maybe it's a subjective view. Well, I don't know. I think there are some things that we can say with with absolute certainty uh, that kind of go beyond subjective uh, personal opinions. And I I think it's fair to say that that's one of them. But it's great that you could join me today uh, here, Tony, because this is a conversation uh, that we've been planning for quite some time. I think we first came up with this episode back in October uh, when we first saw the DS9 documentary um, up in Birmingham in your uh, stomping ground, as it were, to talk about this film that I believe is is a a real favourite of yours. Um, one that I hadn't seen recently, but um, a, a, a really uh, iconic uh, work, perhaps for you, something that is is up there for you, you know, with the James Bonds and the X Files and and so on. And so we we hatched this plan long, long ago, long ago last year to talk about this film, and now finally we're getting to do it. Yes. We are absolutely talking about Weekend at Bernie's 2. No, I'm joking. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually not a, uh, I'm not actually a huge, a huge long-term fan of this, Duncan, I'm afraid. I, this, this is something I saw very recently, actually. So I think the, uh, the, the facts in this case are a little bit askew. That's very strange. But, but we definitely hatched this plan back in October in Birmingham, didn't we? I mean, this is not something that mm. I've just come up with in the last week or so because we could not be bothered to do the research for the, the big historical episode that we were supposed to be doing. I mean, you know, this is something that we've had in the schedule, you know, going back months. I mean, before even you, you'd planned your kind of return on a semi-regular basis to primitive culture. We've had this, uh, we've had this on the roster, haven't we? Oh, again, I'm not sure I quite remember things the way you do, Duncan. We were definitely in Birmingham for the DS9 doc. I definitely messaged you and said, I haven't done my research <laughs> for the historical episode. But I don't think we've been planning this that long. I think, I think we're, uh, we're on different truth tracks here. Well, maybe we'll just have to agree to disagree in that case. But the one thing that I think we can agree on right now, I hope, uh, is is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the uh, seminal 1950 uh, movie 
uh, Japanese movie Rashomon, or uh, I have a feeling, and I should have asked Chris Jones before we started recording, that it may actually be pronounced Rashomon, just looking at the kind of uh, little marks and so on in my in my book of the, of the stories that this, this film was based on. But I, you know, I think we'll go with Rashomon, because as far as I know, that's how mm. everyone uh, in the West certainly refers to this film. Yeah. Um, and it is true, uh, regardless of what I said before, it is true that the, the part of the idea for this was, was seeded in the back of my mind by a comment that um, Armin Shimmerman makes in the ds9 documentary out this week i think on physical media and and download and so on uh in which there's a conversation about this this story that allegedly happened where um his and max gradenchik's heads got switched and they ended up wearing the wrong face masks or something and and one of them tells this story and then one of them says no that never happened and then uh iris stephen bear says oh my god you've you've undermined the kind of premise of this whole documentary if you're all contradicting each other and armin (laughs) sherman says no it's fine it's rashomon it's great you know people will love it and in fact of course in the documentary they make a real strength of that and they have this kind of uh, comment right at the beginning with Andrew Robinson saying you know some of this may not be true and kind of emphasizing the fact that people looking back on things that they remember from the past uh, that their accounts may not be totally reliable and that just because you're making what you're calling a documentary about something doesn't mean that you're guaranteeing that everything in there is necessarily objectively factually true and in some cases there may be uh, room for varying memories or varying interpretations or kind of subjective um, experiences of those shared experiences. Yeah it's a fascinating concept this and it goes back to um, Rash- Rashomon, I think, is is one of the things that really sort of set it out there for people. You know, it even coined the the Rashomon effect, um, which is a, a, it's it's all about the the reliability of the narrator or the or the so called unreliable narr- narrator, and the idea that you can take an event and you can see it from multiple perspectives, and quite often it's about the subjectivity of that event. Mm. And how you may all have a different version of what in other cases could be an objective truth. And in many, in many senses, there could be a, this effect could really affect the majority of things out there. You know, we all view life through a very subjective lens, through our own experiences and our own memories and things like that. And sometimes you have, you know, quite often you will have an objective thing that actually happened and was witnessed by many people, but equally, there are many cases out there, both legal cases, both, you know, narratives, you know, just things that happen in daily life where you could apply the so-called Rashomon effect to it. And it's something that is really surprisingly prevalent in fiction and, mm. and, and in Star Trek. You know, well, it's almost kind of emblematic, I suppose, of the boundary between fiction and non-fiction in some ways, insofar as we expect non-fiction to be accurate and factual and about the truth and this idea of there being sort of objective truth and one one version being correct whereas obviously fiction allows us more sort of leeway to to engage with well things that aren't literally aren't true but also with kind of taking more liberties with the truth and so on i mean it's something that interests me because i spend a lot of my time interviewing people about their own experiences often going back many many years i mean i've just got back from a weekend of uh talking to people about their experiences working in a factory in Liverpool in the 1950s, 60s onwards. And sometimes people will say, you know, this is a long time ago, you know, (laughs) don't expect me to remember everything totally accurately. And the interesting thing is if you interview several people, you inevitably start getting different versions of the same, the same event that they will remember differently, you know, down to 
sometimes quite significant details. And even the same person, because I've often gone back and interviewed the same person uh, again to get, you know, to get a bit more information and they end up telling you the same story they told you last time. And you end up with two interviews that do in some ways contradict each other. And when I first started kind of working with these kind of accounts and writing these books, I was a bit anxious about this. And I was thinking, well, what do I do? Because, you know, these things can't both be true. In the end, I became quite um, kind of cynical about it and basically decided I'd pick whatever suits me the best and go with <laughs> go with that in each given instance. Because when there are things, yeah. and, and they're not usually huge things, they are generally, uh, you know, more sort of... Um, minor kind of subjective things and so on but but that is what storytelling is and you know when we tell stories whether they're true stories or fictitious stories particularly if they're stories that we tell over and over again in our lives and we kind of hone and that we kind of um repeat and that they become kind of a part of our identity inevitably that sort of idea of who we are and and what our life means and what what that particular story is about and also the audience because people might tell me a story differently you know as a kind of historian in quote marks than they might tell a friend down the pub or whatever um you, you know how we kind of modify these stories for a particular audience but i suppose where it becomes problematic is in all these um stories that we're looking at and rashomon being the kind of um uh, almost sort of patient zero of this uh, trope in a sense is is key to this as well there's usually a kind of judicial or a legal uh, aspect to what is going on and therefore there is a kind of assumption that there is a truth to be found and that someone's job is to find that truth and what you get in Rashomon I mean the 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 film Rashomon it's a 1950 film by uh, Kurosawa it's broadly speaking it's it's about an encounter between three people in a, a bamboo grove and it, it's actually adapted largely not from a short that confusingly it's adapted from two short stories one which is called Rashomon uh, which has almost nothing to do with the film it only really they took the framing device for the film which is this conversation that takes place uh, by underneath a giant gate in a rainstorm that's the Rashomon part the actual story is taken from this short story in a bamboo grove and really what it's about is these there's this married couple and a bandit and the, the man in the couple ends up dead and the woman ends up being raped. Uh, but exactly how that played out and what happened and even, you know, actually who killed the man, whether it was the bandit or whether it was uh, all, all three of them are kind of fingered for the crime in different accounts is, is all sort of presented in these differing accounts where people are a deliberately lying, uh, to serve their own interests, but b also kind of constructing a certain version of events that is not not necessarily such a kind of naked lie but is 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 more about this kind of subjective experience and there's a line there's a great line in the film um because this in this framing narrative that takes place uh, at the gate there's a sort of discussion of of what it all means in a sense and one of the characters says people are only people that's why they lie they can't even admit the truth to themselves and i think that's really the key thing about these kind of rashomon stories or this rashomon trope in a sense is it's not just that some people lie because you get that in any detective story you get that in any courtroom drama there's someone who's lying and someone who's telling the truth it's the idea that somehow everyone is in some way lying that that's that the experience and memory is so subjective that it's impossible to give a kind of perfect in star trek you might think you know data is the one who could do that and there is the, in the episode the defector i think picard says he he asks data to record a log of what's going on because because he's the only member of the crew who can kind of record an objective a genuinely objective account in a way but so there's always this kind of legal process going on there's always someone that the stories are being told to and in the short story in a bamboo grove it's literally i mean although it's uh you know prose fiction it's 
essentially a series of chunks of dialogue. So it will say, you, you know, the woodcutter to the magistrate. And then he'll say, you know, I was, I was going along cutting wood and then I stumbled upon this thing. And it's basically just a series of speeches from each of the people that, you know, so the reader is almost in the role of the, of the listener, of the, of the magistrate adjudicating this case. When you get to Rashomon, uh, I don't think you ever see the kind of judge figure, do you? They kind of talk to the camera, no. basically. It's this idea of yeah. like direct address telling these stories. And I think that's a big part of it. And one of the elements that Star Trek ends up borrowing, particularly l- later on in, in Deep Space Nine, when you get to the episode um, Rules of Engagement, which is fairly heavily influenced, I think, in some ways by this by this film and by this kind of idea, to some extent anyway. And you get, again, that kind of direct address to the camera, which is very striking and and Rashomon as a film I think was quite sort of controversial at the time that it was made I mean it was a really groundbreaking piece of work because it did do a lot of sort of playing with cinematic uh expectations and so on you know not just this this inherently kind of subversive idea that somehow truth is all relative and and that no one can stake a claim to to knowing the exact truth but even the way that it's told because it cuts back and forth between these different time frames you know you've got the people speaking to the judge you've got the flashbacks to what they're saying happened which play out differently in the different uh versions and then you've got this kind of framing narrative at the gate and apparently at the time some many people uh you know reading the script and, and indeed watching this film were completely confused by it i mean it's a bit like you know with tarantino and pulp fiction everyone was like oh my god how, what's going on here it's the the it's it's chopped up all over the shop this is not what we expect from a film you, you know especially in 1950 so it was a kind of um a really iconic uh cinematic moment i guess and and part of it is is the style and the form of it which is is a big part of it but part of it also is this kind of quite radical idea that's at the heart of it and the two i suppose are are melded together one way or another the star trek episode that most directly there is a there is quite a few that play with the idea of the unreliable narrator and the you know the concept of different you know subjective versions of truth the one that i suppose is the most clearly inspired by rashomon is a matter of perspective in season uh, three of the Next Generation, which is obviously Riker becoming embroiled in a in the case of a scientist who he's accused of murdering uh, when his space station blows up, and much like Rashomon, it involves a woman who is claiming that he came onto her, and she is a classic example of the kind of Doctor Apgar's wife. In that, is the classic example of the kind of character who believes her own truth. And, and, you know, there's that moment where she's been interviewed about it and Riker says to Deanna, well, you, I didn't do this. You know, I didn't do this. And she says, well, it is the truth as she, as each of you remember it. So that's, that's sort of the key to this. The sub- subjectivity of this kind of narrative can sometimes be, unless someone is, as you say, directly lying, quite often people might genuinely believe the perspective of what they're seeing. And in this case, she did, you know, and, and you go through the episode wondering if she's in on it or she might be the, the killer or she might have been involved or there might be some conspiracy, you know, because we obviously know that Riker isn't likely to have blown up a space station and killed a guy. You know, it's not that's kind of not the point. The point is, what is what is the, the story? And they find quite an inventive sort of techno babbly way, I suppose, of getting around this in, in the episode, even if it may be a little bit, if it's maybe a little bit cheap because it sort of saves everyone's bacon in a way. But it is that whole idea that just because she believed that Riker had killed her husband doesn't necessarily mean that what she thought was wrong in a way. She got the facts wrong, but she believed 
that what she thought was right, she thought was true. And that's a really fascinating way of doing it. It could have been that they were all lying and we just see things from different perspectives and then we find out, oh, well, obviously Riker was telling the truth. But it's not quite that simple. And I, I, I did like that aspect about a matter of perspective. It's an interesting episode. I mean, I feel it's quite a problematic episode because of the element of sexual violence. And actually, you could say Rashomon... One thing that is not disputed in all the accounts, for what it's worth, is the fact that the bandit rapes the wife. Now, they do kind of bring in almost the same effect, because basically in some versions afterwards, she decides to run away with the bandit and forsake her husband. And do you know what I mean? So so her reaction to it is not what you would expect. So there is still this question. I think with all these stories, there's this sort of question of the, the, the... the role of the woman and, and, and this idea of sort of doubt and kind of distrust and everything, particularly in this kind of archetypal setup where you've got, you know, these two men and this, and this woman in the center of it. It's the woman somehow where all the biggest mystery, uh, resides, if you know what I mean. She's, she's almost the one with the kind of, with the problem. Like there, there is this kind of fundamental problem, but, she, but she's kind of, um, at the heart of it somehow what is going on in her head what is going on with her behavior she's this sort of unknowable woman and i think there is a she's massive... femme fatale in a way she well, is a bit almost. of a femme fatale yeah she is almost particularly in, in rashomon mm. i mean in the tng episode i think it's deeply problematic i mean the the fact that reich is being accused of rape for a start calling the episode a matter of perspective and making it about uh, a rape story is is deeply dubious i think in itself secondly yeah. that line that troy says of you know she believes this is what happened and he's like well this is not what happened you know it's kind of it almost plays into this sort of fantasy of the falsely accused man do you know what i mean who like did nothing wrong and yet this woman is 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 sort of magically convinced that he raped her um i don't know i i find it very problematic and i think actually the episode never really gets to the bottom of that. It never really explains how is it possible that this woman believes that Riker raped her and he believes that she was coming on to him pretty strong, but, you know, nothing really happened. But it plays more with the idea that Riker is the ladies' man, doesn't it? You know, it's sort of... The whole sort of story is you know, predicated on you having some level of understanding that Riker quite often does charm the women on these away missions. And, you know, you know, he's, he's been that kind of, you know, uh, handsome you know, tall, dark, handsome figure. And it's it's playing on that perspective of, well, you know, Riker could well have gone down there. It could, it kind of wants you in a way to believe that maybe Riker was being a bit full on with her and did fancy her and all this, but then it it's firmly in his corner, isn't it? It is firmly in his corner all the way through. And it, like you say, I think that's absolutely true, actually, that, that it is sort of from that perspective of, well, you know, he's, she's obviously lying. But I don't think it ever quite... I think Troy's line is very problematic from that point of view because Troy's line suggests she reasonably feels that Riker did something that we believe, that we sort of believe that he didn't. And, and it's almost impossible to know, did he do it or not? Which, And obviously in a legal sense, maybe that's true. I mean, that's one of the reasons that rape cases uh, very rarely... I don't know if they very, you know, one of the, the problems with prosecuting rape cases is that because it's two people in the room and you've only got two people's accounts and no, not necessarily any evidence about intention or kind of, um, exactly what was going on in there. You know, if one says that, th- that it was consensual and one says that it wasn't. But at the same time, most people I think would assume therefore that one of them is lying. But what, Troy is suggesting is that neither of them is lying. And that's because, of course, having Troy in this, this is one of those episodes where having Troy there, like, screws with the concept of the episode because she ought to know the art. Do you know what I mean? She ought to be able to solve it. And so they have to give her a way of not solving the problem. 
But in this case, I feel like it creates a whole bigger problem where you're left thinking, well, hang on. So what, what really did, and did, you know, what, what has Riker been up to? And, and this is kind of pretty shady, but then the episode sort of sidesteps that because it kind of leaves all of that by the wayside. It completely loses interest in the sexual violence aspect of it because it becomes all about the kind of sci-fi business going on and why did the station explode uh, and they find out the solution that explains why you know Riker didn't need to pull a phaser for the right beam of thing to set off the reaction that did the explosion whatever it is um, and it's almost like everyone sort of forgets about this really problematic element of it that we have someone who uh, it says that he's raped her and Troy says she's not lying and like and, and what do we say are we saying she's complete you know is she crazy is she do you know what I mean what is what is going on with this woman it's not really ever addressed and I do think that sort of ties it to the Rashomon story because there there's this idea of of sort of um you know this seemingly quite demure wife character who the more we find out about her the more puzzling and strange and untrustworthy she seems if you know what I mean it sort of seems to to tap into that somehow in, in a slightly uncomfortable way i would say what's interesting with star trek episodes that have the rational effect is they quite often approach these stories from the not just the perspective of a character but for, from the 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 mindset of a character this this is particularly the case with Worf. you know rules rules of engagement is a similar kind of story to uh, to to a matter of perspective it's 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 more angled up on the political side of things in some senses you know that Worf is dragged into this you know it sort of it takes place within the Federation Klingon hostilities after Way of the Warrior and throughout season four of Deep Space Nine. So you've got that bubbling underneath. But and it goes back to the you know, Wolf's whole arc all the way through since the dishonor of his father and all these things about how he's still always struggling to find his place in Klingon society. But it's it's built on this idea of could Worf have made a terrible mistake that cost the lives of these people? And what 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 is his truth? You know, and quite often you you've got you've got the main characters who are, you know, there's the, the O'Brien who comes in and he says, well, you know, Wolf's an honourable man, he would never do this. And then he's grilled from the perspective of, well, would you have done it? And he's like, well, no, I wouldn't have done it. But that, and so it's, it's, it's interesting the way it does a different spin on it. I mean, I, I think it's a stronger episode. I think it's better written because it actually, it's, it's a more of a military tribunal kind of story than a matter of perspective is. It's it's that's not that's not as much of a, a Worf's in the middle of a trial, whereas Riker's sort of on trial, but he's not. It's more about deciding whether he should be put on trial, I, I suppose. But I think it's a it's a stronger story because it taps more into the psychology of Worf as a character than matter of perspective is more about playing on the trope of Riker and what you might expect of him. And I, and I think in that sense, it's a simpler it's a simpler story. It might be a bit more a bit more t- tuned into Rashomon in a way, but, you know, a matter of perspective. But I think Rules of Engagement does it with a little bit more nuance. Yes, I, I think you could... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a matter of perspective is not particularly nuanced, probably. Even, you know, going back to the very first, like, the teaser of that episode is this slightly clunky setup uh, where they're all in the art class and everyone's painting the same model in different styles <laughs> and picard's I mean? picard's painting is terrible have you did you see that poor old picard like, i mean Picard. you know <laughs> data should see jane 
attempts at painting that we get later on in Voyager. Oh god, I thought, yeah. I thought I Picard's that. painting wasn't that bad, to be honest. But li- oh, I mean, okay. literally to the point where one of the one of them <laughs> has drawn this naked lady uh, in a kind of surreal style as a violin. <laughs> like, okay, I mean, right? Uh, yeah, like, that's really strange. You're labouring the point here slightly that you, you know that the experiences can be subjective or whatever. Because because again, it's this weird thing where they actually it's not that they all see this woman slightly differently. Uh, they're painting in complete, you know, one of them is doing a kind of Picasso, one of them is doing a sort of, you know, whatever, Dali or something. And one of them is, I can't remember what the other one is, Picard's doing something kind of, he's always, he's doing something sort of vaguely cubist or something. Like they're all approaching it in a very different style anyway. But it's, it, arguably it's, it's, there's something slightly clunky about a matter of perspective. I think it's quite clever the way that it uses the holodeck. I mean, for my money, both these episodes are flawed, but they're both, I don't think they're bad episodes. I think they're both quite interesting in different ways. Interestingly, uh, rules of engagement. I was looking up in the, um, DS9 companion. Ira Stephen Bear came down really hard on that episode. He said basically they had all these great ideas for it. They thought it was going to be a brilliant idea, but they became too focused on the kind of formal aspect of it as a kind of writing exercise. And he said he felt, which I, I think there is some truth to this, that they kind of lost track of Worf slightly in the episode. Uh, and that actually there are long sections of the episode where Worf doesn't really do anything or say anything, even though it's supposed to be an episode all about Worf. And that somehow he felt that when they, what he says is that they, they all thought it was going to be this great episode and they watched it back after they'd shot it. And they were like, oh, we did, you know, and they didn't feel they'd quite nailed it. Now I would say there are lots of good things about that episode though it's um directed very well i think by lavar burton uh it does have this quite sort of um striking address to camera which is something that i don't think star trek had ever done before that obviously we get it again later on within the pale moonlight we get you know avery brooks doing a whole pretty much a monologue uh to camera basically but it's quite a bold decision and and is carried off well. Interesting, I, I was sort of wondering when I was watching it, was that LeVar Burton's idea? You, you know, who was it who brought in that idea? Which, as I say, does very much pick up on the kind of Rashomon style. Uh, but apparently that was in the script and that was Ira Stephen Bear's idea. Ronald uh, D. Moore wrote the episode, but it was Ira who came up with it, who, who said that he wanted them to speak to camera, basically. But aside from the very fact they speak to camera, it's also quite clever in the way that it plays... Again, a bit like Rashomon between these different time frames and different, it, it doesn't just jump, it doesn't just cut back and forth between the person giving their testimony and the kind of reenactment of that testimony. Uh, and again, you know, as, as, as Rashomon does presenting that differently. So for example, in Rashomon, uh, the bandit in some people's accounts is more sort of sweaty and more kind of scary than in, do you, do you know what I mean? There are kind of differences as to kind of the presentation. But what it also does, which is quite clever, is they start narrating from within the action, if you know what I mean. So they're, they're narrating to camera, but the scene is playing around them. Um, and apparently there were lots of other elements like the, the visual effects people. Um, they wanted the, that they, they were very definite to kind of shoot their, their sequences that were going to be repeated differently. So they, so they didn't want to like reuse footage, essentially. It's almost some of the same challenge that you get with something like cause and effect, where you're kind of replaying the same thing again and again, because in some ways that's what's happening in these stories where you're kind of, um, certainly in Rashomon, you are, you know, you really are kind of, you're not exactly replaying the same events because the events are different according to who's telling the story, but you are sort of replaying the same, um, 
situation and, and a lot of the nuances come out of that. And also it made me think a bit. I mean, one reason that I, I did suggest this idea to you, because it made me think very much of, um, the X-Files episode, Bad Blood, which is, is definitely a kind of Rashomon inspired, inspired episode where you see, you basically see, and, and it's quite a funny episode. This is an episode where there's a guy who is, is he a vampire or isn't he a vampire? And, and Mulder ends up killing him in the, in the teaser seemingly and 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 then Mulder and Scully are we don't really see the kind of tribunal element of it but we see them trying to get their stories straight beforehand and so we get Scully's version of what happened and then Mulder's version of what happened and what struck me as interesting about that is the idea of kind of subjectivity is not radical at all for the X-Files because every episode you could say you basically get Mulder's version and Scully's version of what's happened but what you get in this instance is Mulder's version of Scully and, and Mulder's version of Mulder and Scully's version of Scully and Scully's version of Mulder. So it's a lot of it is really about like how and how the actors therefore have to play each one of them in effect has to play three characters because they have to play their regular character. They have to play their character, their sort of character's best self as they imagine themselves and then their character's worst self as their partner imagines them. So in Scully's version, Mulder is really arrogant and annoying. Uh, and in Mulder's version, uh, Scully is really sarcastic and rude, basically. Um, but they also kind of both play themselves up in a more, in a more positive way as well. So it, it kind of, but the other thing I think is interesting about it is that it's played for laughs. And with the X-Files, it seems to me like there's that episode. There's also, um, Jose Chung's from outer space. Is that what it's called? Which sort of play again plays with sort of unreliable, like uh, n- different narrators telling bizarre stories that don't quite add up. It always seems like, this idea is sort of fundamentally comic. Whereas, you know, Rashomon is a drama and when Star Trek plays it, it's absolutely, it's dead serious. Do you know what I mean? Like the stakes are high. Riker could, uh, he, he says at one point, I've got a noose around my neck. Worf could end up extradited to Kronos and, you, you know, uh, again, he could potentially be executed as well. You know, it's these people who are on trial and the stakes are extremely high. It just sort of struck me what, you know, what is what, what what is it about these issues that you know one show or one franchise or whatever sees them as quite fundamentally serious these kind of issues of subjectivity and the unknowability of things and another sees it as a kind of hilarious uh opportunity to kind of undercut the sort of reality of because I suppose arguably normally TV, it is quite an objective medium in some ways. I mean I mean I mean you you can you can get subjective experience in the way that you shoot it and so on but it but but it, on a in a kind of literal sense you are seeing one thing on the screen and everyone watching it is seeing the same thing do you know do you know what i mean i mean even if they might interpret it differently there there is a kind of objective reality to it even as it plays with subjectivity within it well i i think the different i think you hit the nail on the head when you're talking about the x-files the difference i think the reason that they play it for comedy in the x-files is because every week you have some level of subjectivity you know you have some level of what is the truth what isn't the truth you know it it has what these agents have been investigating been really what happened you know and quite often you'll get episodes that the audiences are left unsure as to precisely what it meant or you know what the truth was in that sense whereas with star trek particularly you know most episodes of traditional star trek are pretty much you know what what you see is what you're supposed to believe is what happened. You know, these people are professionals and they are, you know, they're, they're the good guys, you know, usually in particularly in the, the, the pre, you know, modern era Star Trek. Uh, and they're, they're very linear narratives. Whereas 
I think I think with with the X Files they play it for comedy because they're aware that in order it, it's the, it's about the perception of the characters more than anything else. You know, Bad Blood is exactly that. Bad Blood is all about how these characters are perceived, and they play it's playing up to the audience's perception as well. You know, the, the, the all in those in that episode. If you watch the X-Files, you understand that Mulder and Scully have particular characteristics. You know, Mulder is particularly, you know, driven by belief and he will go out on the limb with all these theories and Scully's the one every week who goes, well, you know, maybe there's a scientific explanation. And in that episode, they play up the idea that Mulder is conversely this meek guy who's terrified of his really angry partner going, what are you talking about? She's rubbish. Or... On the other hand, he's this strident, you know, confident, cocky, obviously I'm going to go and sort it out. And she's there just following his lead. And you, you're laughing at it because you're laughing at what, the, at the subversion of what are these tropes are that you watch every week. And you, you're laughing at the, the actors playing up with that. And the similar, similar kind of thing happens in Jose Chung's From Outer Space, which is a, a comedy episode written by a guy called Darren Morgan, who was famous in the X-Files for writing comedy episodes, episodes that lampoon particularly Mulder in those episodes, because he finds Mulder ridiculous, this writer, and he <laughs> every time he writes him in such a way. So that episode, which is all about alien abduction and about, and again, actually, is a problematic sexual assault at the, at the, at the core of that story, funnily enough. And it's about the, whether aliens abducted this girl or something else happened to her. And, and you, you do see things from various different perspectives. You know, as, she, as this girl says in that, well, they're, they're stealing my memories. And you never quite know if it's the government. You never quite know if it's aliens. You don't know if it's men dressed up as aliens and all this kind of thing. Whereas because Star Trek is grounded in a sort of truth, I think it's a bit more afraid of, of the kind of fractured truth narrative than the X-Files is. I think it's more afraid to actually put these characters through a situation where you might have to question their their veracity. You might have to question their nobility or their, you know, their sense of, of right and wrong. And when and that's why much as I like the episodes that deal with this, ultimately they are they're rooted in something that won't stick because you know full well that Riker's probably not done what he's done. You know full well that Worf wouldn't knowingly go out there and blow up innocent people. You know full well in Living Witness, which is another good episode for this that in Voyager, where the Doctor is uh, found 700 years later by a race who who have in, built into their history the idea that Voyager was a warship and created this great intergalactic war. You know full well Janeway didn't do that. So you you, you come into it from a perspective of you know that this isn't true as an audience member and you know that what you're seeing these subjective narratives ultimately should prove the the heroism or the veracity of these characters you know and love whereas it's not quite that simple in some of these other cases of the Rashomon effect it could leave you wondering what's true and what isn't whereas Star Trek's a bit afraid to do that I think I think that's absolutely true and yeah I think you're right some of the more effective examples of this trope playing out are the ones that are willing to kind of live with a degree of uncertainty and a degree of kind of mystery. I think you're right. Certainly when you look at Voyager, you look at episodes like Living Witness or Author Author is the other one where you get like this, a fictionalised version of events or a kind of a fake version of Voyager in a sense. Um, and in both cases, they're, they're, it's that they're all really horrible and that these lovely guys who, uh, you, you know, we know the the sort of Starfleet characters, we love them, they're, they're decent people and so on. It, the idea that they're not... I mean, Living Witness, I, you see, to me, I know some people talk about it as a kind of Rashomon-inspired story. To me, that's not, it, it doesn't sort of hit that trope in the same way because it doesn't have, 
this idea of multiple perspectives, it's really just one perspective and it's wrong. And it's so wrong that there's kind of, uh, it's obvious. Do you know what I mean? To us as the viewer, there's no question that it could be, that any of it could be true. Author, author, I, again, I feel like the doctor's version of, of it, it's so extreme that it kind of, it makes itself ridiculous. I mean, that is an example of, of playing this kind of thing for comedy in Star Trek, I suppose, like, like the X-Files was playing it for comedy. Um, but you see, I think there's, a, again, a kind of fundamental problem with author, author in that by playing it so absurd, it actually undercuts what is potentially a serious issue underneath it, which is the doctor feeling that he has not always been treated as a, you know, full person in a sense by the rest of the characters. And actually there are elements in author author that tap into earlier episodes. And yes, they're pushed to the extreme and they're made ridiculous, but there's a kernel of truth there. And again, what the episode does in this kind of Star Trek way is it sort of uh, sweeps that all back under the carpet by the end, if you know what I mean, because it kind of, um, it, it makes it all seem ridiculous. And then it doesn't really get an airing, if you know what I mean. Then the doctor kind of has to go back on himself and it kind of, and you lose this sense of actually, was there to some degree a genuine grievance there with say the way that Janeway uh, behaved towards him? I mean, you had the episode, um, latent image, uh, a few seasons before, which is quite an interesting episode because you see Janeway kind of changing her position on the doctor a bit, but certainly at the, beginning of that episode being quite uh unsympathetic towards him and saying you know she has that line to seven and nine she says he's he's not that different from a replicator you know whereas i feel like with author author the way they write it it kind of eliminates all of that in a way by by pushing it to the absurd level but you're right there's absolutely star trek wants to kind of make it safe it wants to make it obvious to some degree it wants to make it obvious who is lying and i suppose you're right we do sort of um we do kind of trust Riker, I suppose, more than we trust this woman who we'd never met before. Although, you know, that in itself maybe is, is a slightly problematic kind of setup. But I suppose there is this sort of question of, you know, who's lying? Who's telling the truth? What's there? Uh, you know, someone is telling the truth and someone is lying. Whereas really when you've got the kind of Rashomon idea, it's, it's more, this more sort of fundamental idea that everyone is lying all the time somehow. And that doesn't really fit with Star Trek somehow. With Star Trek, I feel it's a bit more like, um, have you ever watched that panel show, Would I Lie to You, where you have, yeah. you know, celebrities <laughs> and they tell stories and they're either telling true stories or they're just yeah. making something up and they have to guess whether they're, whether they're lying or not. It's a bit more like that. It's the kind of, it's not so much about the subjectivity of, of, of general lived experience and memory in some kind of fundamental human sense. It's more, uh, yeah, sometimes people lie and, and it, it is almost a bit more like that kind of procedural thing. I think when Ron Moore was talking about writing that DS9 episode, he said he was, he wasn't inspired by Rashomon really. He was inspired by Perry Mason and like, um, and actually LeVar Burton as well as, although he went and watched Rashomon as an inspiration, he said he also watched loads of episodes of LA Law. So I suppose there's that kind of, there's the kind of almost, I suppose the more highbrow influence, but then there's also the more kind of nuts and bolts influences, whether that's in the writing or the, or the directing or, or whatever. And And all those things kind of come together with these stories, I think. And actually one thing I noticed today that hadn't struck me before when I was rewatching a couple of these episodes is the director of A Matter of Perspective by a funny coincidence is Cliff Bowl, big Star Trek director. And he also mm. directed that X-Files episode, Bad Blood. Yeah. So, you know, whether that was just a coincidence or someone, someone thought, oh, he's got, he's got good form on these, you, you know, sort of split, uh, unreliable, uh, you, you know, whatever you call it, these kind of Rashomon stories. It could be. But I think but the director it, has a big part to play in like, how do you, 
I mean, the the writer sets the tone to to a large extent, but the director has a big part to play in sort of how do you represent these differences in in these different realities, and how do you kind of are they subtle enough that they feel sort of real and and confusing and and genuinely troubling for the audience, or do you make them safe by kind of pushing them to extremes one way or another? Well, I mean, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Rashomon is probably Akira Kurosawa's most famous movie. You know, it's it's the film that I mean, he's. He, if anyone knows much about film, he's probably the most famous Japanese, you know, uh, filmmaker ever. You know, he's like, you know, the equivalence of people like Stanley Kubrick, you know, in, in the US, uh, you know, just, just an absolutely groundbreaking seminal director. And I, and, you know, he made some really well known movies, you know, The Seven Samurai, things like that, you know, Yojimbo, uh, all, all these, Ran, all these kind of films. But Rashomon's the one that really, not only put him on the map, but actually has really stu- stu- stuck in people's minds and created, like I say, this ripple effect throughout literature. And it was, th- th- you know, the idea of perspective was obviously there beforehand, but it, it, Rashomon did it in a different way. Rashomon really put you in the middle of a scenario where you came out the back of that, never quite sure which was the real truth. And ultimately, it, it sort of created the idea that everyone's truth is is their own. Everyone's truth is individual. That everybody ultimately is going to look at things through a particular perspective. And even if there is a rational, objective truth at the end of it, there is a, an unassailable fact. This happened. He did that. She did this. Whatever. You will have people go through life who don't believe it. And, you know, I mean, look, look at what we're going through right now. Not to be too on the nose about things, but, you know, we might as well be living in the middle of Rashomon right now in terms of politically, socially. No one is, no one knows what the truth is, you know, even more so than ever right now, because they're, they're, everyone is living their own narrative to some extent, living their own truth. They're putting their own belief on things. And we've literally had, I mean, in the last uh, week or so when we've been recording a rare example, I think, of, of something where, I mean, you, you know, you, you you're very interested in the X-Files and the kind of conspiracy theories and so on. We've had something happen. This is the, um, I, I have to work out. I was going to, the apparent suicide of Jeffrey Epstein, where people from every, almost every, uh, element of the kind of spectrum believe in some kind of conspiracy. Do, do you know what I mean? It's, it's a weird situation. Normally there's, there's like one group of people banging on about a conspiracy. I have to say for me personally, I read that headline. I was like, it, my first thought was, I don't, I don't believe that. Do you know, do you know what I mean? I think it's, it's an example of something where, and maybe that is a, a sign of the times in a way, but normally there are certain things that some people don't believe and other people do believe. And I'm not one for conspiracy theories, generally speaking, but that is a, is an odd example of a, a thing that, an event that occurs in the news and actually a very large number of people with wildly divergent beliefs about all sorts of other things almost instantly have the same reaction which is i just uh, that is too you don't convenient that is too do you know what i mean that 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 i that smells fishy do you know what i mean that yeah no absolutely and and yeah you you are getting people go down a a conspiracy rabbit hole with this stuff i mean my Mm. personally i think with conspiracies the reason i don't reason i love the x-files and i love all these things is because they they are fascinating stories and ideas but I, i personally i think i don't believe in conspiracies because I don't believe people are competent enough to pull them off most of the time, <laughs> you know, in the real world. That's because um, you never met the cigarette smoking man in real life, isn't it? You know? <laughs> oh, well, exactly. <laughs> this is it. You know, I uh, I should have more faith in Section 31, shouldn't I, really, and all these yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but I think it's, 
it, it, it's it's a good example of of yeah of, of particular truth because majority of people would go mm, that's a bit dodgy you know because this guy in this situation he's sitting on potentially what could be an a, a, an absolutely enormous you know scandal in terms of the, some of the most powerful people in you know government politics everything you know in terms royal of family really, you know, yeah, the royal everything. family everything it, it could unlock the biggest you know scandal. Um, in terms of abuse, since you know things like Project Operation Utri and all these things that happened, and, and you, you think you, you think to yourself, well, you know this this is a bit too convenient, but then it could be all kinds of different factors. You know, you could build a Rashomon story around what happened to this guy. You know, you could have the the potential conspiracy theory. You could have the fact it was negligence. You could have the fact that he killed himself. You could, you know, and you could, you could do that with, with lots of these different examples. You could do it with any conspiracy theory story, really. You know, you could do it with a JFK, you know, you could do it with a princess Diana and all these things. And I suppose that's why sometimes you do get films. Like I think there was one called vantage point actually, which was starred Dennis Quaid about 10 years ago, which I quite enjoyed, which was built around a bomb going off, I think in Spain. And it was it was a, it was like a twenty four style espionage thriller, and it was a Rashomon story. It was different perspectives of this explosion going off before you got to a, a certain truth, and it was fairly formulaic. Ultimately, I think ultimately there was a bad guy, and the guy gets him and everything. But it did approach it from different perspectives, and I think that's that's why you can sort of port this storyline to all these different these different things. I think with Star Trek. The truth is that the, a matter of perspective is probably the most resolute Rashomon story that they they've done. I think with all these other things, I think you're right. You know, I think even the even rules of engagement is is more of a detective military tribunal kind of story than a Rashomon story. You know, there is there is a little bit less of that. Living Witness is more. I like Living Witness. It's not it's not a Rashomon story in a way, but in a way it is because it's all about. It's a, it's a different kind of perspective. It's not about an individual. It's about a culture and about a culture's approach to their own history, which Voyager happens to be involved in. And the doctor comes in very much as the the person turning around and saying, well, you've got history wrong. This isn't this isn't what happened. This 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 isn't true. And and if this is wrong, then what you've what you've created over the last seven hundred years is built on a lie. So you know, you might need to rethink your own your own destiny as a, as a, as a, as a pair of cultures who were at war. So it's a different way of approaching this kind of idea of, of an absence of objective truth and people believing what they want to believe. And I, but, and I think it's a good story in that sense, but I think it's, it's, it's flawed in the idea of it being a, you know, a a multi-perspective story, like, like a matter of perspective. I I think the one, the one I like the most in terms of the unreliable narrator is, is in the pale moonlight because, that's not a Rashomon story either, in the same way. But it, it's the best unreliable narr- narrator story in a way, um, or reliable narrator, depending on how, how you look at it. But it, it's if if I'd love to have seen them do a proper Rashomon story around that episode because it, you do end up with a compromised Cisco. That's that's the one of the one episodes that does leave the hero a little bit less heroic. You know, and forever. it ends on doubt is the key thing. Yeah, it doesn't so it does. much end on doubt as to what has happened, but it ends on doubt as to where Cisco is at the end of that story. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think you're right. They, a, they, it, yeah, you could. that is a story you could definitely have done. You could have had Garrick testifying and, and Quark testifying. You, you could certainly, certainly totally have done that. But what it ends on is this kind of sense that he, you know, he has that final line, I think I can live with it. 
and it the episode ends on this kind of question mark can he or can't you, you know what what what's really going on in this man's soul basically um and i suppose that's the interesting question you and you get a discussion a bit like that in rules of engagement as well that they're sort of saying cisco says you know we can't put a man's heart on trial or something and the, and the klingon says that's exactly what we have to do and that really what it comes down to is what was going on for Worf at that moment was he acting purely rationally as a Starfleet officer or was he acting out some kind of revenge fantasy or was he kind of acting out this bloodlust because he has said you know uh he said to Quark I, I hope they come I hope we get to fight basically he's he said these various other sort of compromising things to other people and there is this sort of question because there's that interesting bit where O'Brien says uh you know, well, I wouldn't have done it, essentially. But, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that he did the wrong thing, but I would have checked. And then there is this sort of sense at the end, once all that once all that ambiguity is over, there is also a fairly clear line. Cisco basically says to him, you were bloody stupid to, to do that without, you know, to fire on that ship without absolutely confirming that it was what you thought it was. But then, but then he sort of spins it as Worf ultimately is learning a lesson to be a great captain one day. You know, it's, it, yeah. it, you know, he, it doesn't end on the, on the, on Cisco walking out disappointed in him and Worf having this real doubt of, you know, am I, am I the man I, you know, I thought I was or am I, am I truly, it's not, it doesn't do that. It's, it does have that Cisco moment of indignation, but it's not as ballsy as in the pale moonlight, which does end on maybe Cisco, well, Cisco should not have done that. And he's, he's lost a bit of his soul. And that's and that's fantastic drama. Well, ultimately, there are no stakes in the in the rules of engagement in a sense because none of these mm. people have died after all. Nothing is written. No. You know, literally nothing is. The yeah. whole episode is about nothing. I mean, in a matter of perspective, this you know guy has died. He was a bit of a pain in the neck. Any, I mean, no one's going to really be mourning. <laughs> yeah, him. yeah, exactly. they made him yeah. about as obnoxious as they could. Uh, plus, yeah. he was dealing in some dodgy business that he shouldn't have been up to so it's kind of all krieger waves exactly it's it's all his own fault Mm. anyway but i think i think star trek does try to sort of um (laughs) you know star trek has a tendency to sort of make everything all right at the end and ds9 is the one star trek series that doesn't always do that and you're right in the pale moonlight absolutely avoids that in quite a compelling way but i think rules of engagement it does all sort of tie up there is still a sense though because cisco says to Worf at the end he sort of tells him he's going to have to go to the party that's being held in his honor and he's going to have to pretend to enjoy it i think there is a sense that Worf is a bit is troubled by it all because he has realized he has learned something about himself because he acknowledges at the very end when it's sort of all safe and out of the way he acknowledges that there was a kind of he was influenced in some way by those feelings that he was having and by, and by these kind of less than totally noble intentions in a way and i suppose that's one of the things that's quite interesting about these stories i mean you know in some ways having wharf at the center of this story it makes a lot of sense um adapting this japanese film and not just a japanese film from 1950 but a japanese film that is set in the kind of ancient past and in this kind of world of kind of warriors and bandits and honor and and you know and a lot of it is all about you know the woman's dishonor for having been raped in front of her husband and the husband's dishonor and, and the honor of the band you know sort of not quite honor among thieves but but there is an element of that because there's a point where the bandit does something uh that that causes the, the husband to sort of respect him more if you know what i mean but it's it's because i think the the wife says she wants to in one of these versions the wife says she wants to run away with a bandit and the bandit is kind of shocked and, and asks the husband do you want me to kill her now or whatever and this i mean this all sounds awful and it is if you think about it for five seconds but i mean it, it sort of plays into all these sort of ideas of like honor and guilt and kind of these um big sort of 
weighty um, issues that, that sort of hang around these individuals in a way, um, in a way that I don't think is really there in a matter of perspective, because I think they're... You see, maybe that episode could have been more interesting in some ways if they had dared to play with the ambiguity, the fact that Riker is a bit of a ladies' man, he is a bit of a flirt. Is it possible that he sometimes slightly crosses the line and behaves a little bit inappropriately? And if they were able to play in a slightly greyer area, they could have made it more interesting. But at the same time, then you would be left with more serious questions about Riker, in a way. And I feel like the episode sort of wants to bring all of that into it, partly because that's part of the Rashomon story and it's part of the kind of setup, but then conveniently sort of sidestep that into this discussion. Basically, I mean, in in both those stories, what Star Trek does is, you know, science saves the day. So uh, science saves the day in a matter of perspective because they discover that the holodecks created Krieger waves and that, you know, just like it created, you know, this holodeck that creates Moriarty, creates deadly waves that are destroying the ship, you know. Um, the holodeck is clearly massively overpowered uh, in Next Gen, but that basically they've, so they've sort of created this technical problem that gives an insight into the solution. And it turns out that they can sort of science the science and work out that actually uh, no one fired a phaser and this science experiment business uh, caused the explosion. In DS9, it's Odo kind of digging around, digging around, digging around and finding in a very kind of X-Files uh, moment, really, that all the, the dead people who Worf has supposedly killed actually died three months earlier and that the whole thing is, you know, is a conspiracy and is a setup. And so, again, this whole issue of, you know, in, in the one, this sort of apparent alarming ambiguity around sexual consent and so on is swept by the wayside by this kind of science explanation. In the other, this whole kind of wrought uh issue around guilt and honor and the klingon soul and and you know violence and and uh doing the right thing and duty and all these kind of issues again is sort of slightly sidestepped by the fact oh well actually yeah it was all complete fiction anyway none of it none of it ever happened and i think it's kind of interesting so star trek sort of squares the circle it always comes up with this sort of satisfying um resolution uh, the other story that came to my mind when we were thinking about this that I think is, is quite interesting in this respect is the play Copenhagen, which was a play written by uh, Michael Frayn um, about a famous incident uh, which happened during the Second World War when Werner Heisenberg, who was working on the uh, German atomic bomb project, basically, went to visit his old kind of mentor, basically Niels Bohr in Copenhagen, uh, and had this meeting uh with so went around to his house and had, a, had some kind of discussion with him which in later years no one could quite agree exactly what was said or what the purpose of this visit was or what it was really about and you know one theory is that that heisenberg was trying to warn Bohr about the german program one theory is that he was trying to find out about allied nuclear programs and there's this sense in the play that you know really i think heisenberg is this kind of key character in it because there's there's also this sense of is he how much is everyone lying to everyone else everyone knows they're being that you know all their homes are tapped and everything by the nazis so they know they're being listened to is heisenberg basically actually as he suggests at various points they're trying to sabotage effectively sabotage the german program because he doesn't want to create a bomb but he has to kind of play along with it and kind of act as if he's doing his best and then there's this kind of sense of you know this terrible responsibility that he has and this kind of weird game of trust that he's playing that he he at one point says he's hoping that Bohr will kind of do the same on the ally that basically on both sides the scientists could kind of bluff their own 
superiors, in a sense, in order to prevent this almost inevitable but disastrous thing from happening. But in that play, it's very much, it's all about the kind of fundamental uncertainty of these things. And it plays a lot with the idea of, you know, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, the idea that you can't fully understand some, do you know what I mean? Literally in the, in the act of observing it and kind of noting it down, you, you, you kind of lose your ability to fully understand it. And one of the things that he says at one point is he felt this enormous pressure that he was someone who could affect the lives of millions of people potentially by, you know, developing this bomb or not. But he, he is the one person that a bit, a bit like in that X-Files episode, he's the one person that he doesn't have full understanding of the, you know, the, the people in this place, there's these two and then there's, uh, Burr's, Burr's wife that they, they can see each other somehow, but no one can ever fully know themselves or see themselves. And that that makes it, that, that, that is this sort of fundamental existential problem that can never be resolved. Do you know what I mean? And that's really what the play is kind of saying is that there's this deep mystery at the heart of the human experience somehow that we never fully understand ourselves and we never see ourselves as other people see us. And that this can kind of come down even to the level of, on this kind of quite basic level, what was happening in this conversation where people were speaking guardedly in a very difficult situation, feeling very ambivalent, you know, Ber- um, Heisenberg's very ambivalent himself. Uh, he doesn't want Germany to be destroyed at the same time. He doesn't want to be responsible for killing millions of people. And there's also this interesting sense in that, that, uh, Bohr tells a story early on about a game of cards that they played where he, he won by bluffing everyone. Um, and, and, and Heisenberg is sort of saying, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't believe it. We were all mathematicians. We were counting the cards. We you knew it was almost, almost impossible that you had the cards that you said that you did, but you seemed so confident in the end, we all folded. And then Bohr says, oh, well, it turned out I, I'd, I'd misread my own cards. I bluffed myself. And that's this sort of idea that, you know, you, that you are unknowable even to yourself because your own, do, do, do you know what I mean? Like he's, he, he's not even aware of what he's, he's kind of full. Not only are people lying to each other, but I suppose this idea that they're lying to themselves and that therefore ultimately everything that we know about the other people and about ourselves is kind of unreliable. That there is no, uh, reliable narrator in a sense. There is no kind of reliable source. Everything is fundamentally uncertain. Mm. And I, I, that, that's a fascinating idea. And I, I suppose that's why this trope endures because in some senses you wonder why you wonder why with these stories star trek even bothered in a way because and 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 a lot of these like you know um older series that maybe just did this trope you know with the x-files you can understand the reason there particularly with bad blood because it is it's it's played for laughs and it's meant to be like i said an audience's reaction to these characters you know really well being sent up and 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 how they you know, there, there were a lot of episodes as the time went on with that show, which were all about how Mulder saw Scully and vice versa and how it informed their dynamic and their relationship and their quest. Whereas with Star Trek, because it was a, a different kind of show and a different kind of approach, they almost feel disposable. You know, we've, we've sort of said this, you know, but by the end of a matter of perspective, Riker's just back to being Riker and they sail off in the ship and they're all, you know, all fine and dandy. The guy's dead. Who cares? With rules of engagement, like you say, it was all a big, conspiracy anyway and yes for morph is left with a moment of like it's true you did say that and that is true that he is left wondering a little bit but it doesn't really inform his character particularly after this it's kind of all forgotten really so you think to yourself well why do this if unless you're going to play with a level of perception or you're going to play with this idea about you know in individual truth and unreliability and actually have either some knock-on effect to 
the characters themselves or to the, the surrounding world or make make some sort of profound point. You know, Copenhagen, by the way you describe it, I've not seen it myself, but it's 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 asking you to question bigger ideas, you know, around all of this this story. It's asking you to question the nature of truth. And I don't think these Star Trek episodes do. And you, you think to yourself, well, uh, are they, and I go back to my point in that, are they more about shoring up the, the heroism and the and the the infallibility of these people ultimately than they are actually trying to make you question the nature of truth and and i i watched all of these episodes and i enjoyed all, all three of them to be honest i think they're all perfectly solid perfectly good episodes in their own way but i left all of them thinking what difference do they make you know and 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 I, you know when you watch rashomon Yes it's, yes, it's a film. It's not part of a series and it's not ongoing characters. But you come out of that film, which is nearly 70 years old, let's remember, and you are left thinking. You know, it, it, they are conceptually archetypal characters in, like you said, you know, this sort of ancient, fant- almost fantasy sort of version of Japan. But they, they, it leaves you thinking about the nature of truth. And, you know, it's, it, I'd like to see a modern Star Trek show have a go at a Rashomon story properly. You know, because maybe nowadays they maybe would have the license to to really have this kind of plot matter more. Mm. You know, in the in the broader scheme of things, certainly, a, a particularly a matter of perspective. You know, it's what what twenty or something is. I mean, it, it maybe it, there's an element of something slightly dated about it. I mean, both these episodes. You know, this is episodic Star Trek. It is going to kind of reset to the status quo to some degree we can't really expect them not to do that necessarily. I mean, even as much as we might love there to be more deep, you know, character work and kind of more character development and so on. And maybe that's part of it. I mean, I think it's interesting. I felt, you know, cause I did, I went and read the, the source uh, material for Rashomon as well. This story in a bamboo grove and, and the short story Rashomon as well. Though I wouldn't say that's massively relevant to it, but um, I think the film is particularly good because I think the film adds a lot to i mean all the kind of plot stuff is pretty much all there in the story basically it's the kind of bare bones of it but what the film does is by adding this framing narrative around it which is the, the story that takes place in the rainstorm basically where people are effectively almost discussed almost like um in the muppet show where you've got those you know grumpy old guys kind of making comments <laughs> from the sidelines you know what i mean almost kind of commenting yeah. on the story as it's happening um which in some ways seems like a bit of a cheap device, but actually that I think is where the film kind of pins down more of a theme. And you do have people sort of talking about uh, what's going on and what it means somehow. Um, and you also have an element where they kind of feed into each other because in the end, it turns out that one of the characters who's in that frame narrative uh, is also lying uh, about something. I mean, like quite concretely lying about something that he's done. So, so it ties in, quite nicely together but apparently when they were making the film that was a kind of sort of second draft aspect to it you know originally it was just going to be basically this this short story and then i I think it was kurosawa who said he wanted to bring in he wanted to bring in more somehow and 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 either he or someone else had the idea of like of of merging it with this other short story that akutagawa is that his name the writer the same writer anyway famous japanese writer uh had written another short story around the same time these were both written although the film is 1950 they were both written i think one was 1911 one was 1915 so kind of you know very early 20th century basically and had written this quite evocative short story about a terrible rainstorm in the, uh, at this gate basically and they just really just took the setting from that but it meant that they were able to kind of 
pinpoint the themes a little bit more. And in some ways, you might think that would make it seem too on the nose. It would make it seem a bit obvious somehow. But for me, somehow it works. And maybe that's also, you know, it is a 1950 film. It's a black and white film. It's quite, it's quite dated in certain respects now. I mean, I was watching on the train up to Liverpool and my partner was looking over my shoulder at this guy playing the bandit, kind of sweating and jumping up and down and cackling. <laughs> and she sort of made a face at me like, you know, what on earth are you watching? <laughs> Basically, <laughs> it, it, it is, it is like, uh, it, that it's certainly not how you would do film today. If you know what I mean, it's, it's of its, it's yeah. a document of sure. its time, but certainly on its own terms, it's very effective and very compelling and very, uh, striking and interesting and sort of, and it does feel like it's sort of grappling with something bigger than itself. I suppose maybe that's the issue with these, um, Star Trek episodes is they feel a little bit, small somehow maybe you know maybe the the wharf episode it did end up just being perry mason in space and that wasn't they were going for something more conceptual and more interesting which arguably they succeeded massively within the pale moonlight that that was a kind of concept piece in a way that they absolutely pulled off this one was maybe a concept piece that kind of ended up being a little bit more by the numbers um one way or another because of the way that it kind of played out but i mean I, yeah i don't dislike either of these episodes really i mean i have as i say i have more of a problem with the next gen one because i think there's this quite problematic sexual politics going on in it but at the same time it's not really about that so i i, I don't know you kind of like i i can i can sort of enjoy it without getting too wrapped up in that because i think the episode itself sort of loses interest in that so quickly but i think it, it, it it's an interesting trope it's you know rational is definitely a very interesting film to go and see and it is one that has been massively influential in various ways i mean i would say those x-files episodes are probably more successful use of the trope in some ways yeah because they do something quite unique and even even within the scope of yes the x-files did a lot of comic episodes in various ways and they and they played on the absurdity of all and they played up they sort of camped up the characters to some degree but even within all of that i think something like particularly bad blood does something quite clever with with playing with this idea of you know, as I say, like Mulder's idea of who Scully is and Scully's idea of who Mulder is and so on. You know, it's, it's not just, it's not just saying these characters can be pushed. They're quite there. There's, there's potential for, uh, something slightly ridiculous about them and we can exaggerate and make them ridiculous, particularly someone like Mulder. It's, it's more interesting. Like, how do they see each other? It, it does give you a genuine insight, even if it's, um, exaggerated and silly. In a way that I think, you know, you could say author author does that with the Doctor in Voyager, but I feel author author kind of squanders it slightly because it makes it so absurd and so I don't know, it it, it kind of gets so sidetracked that episode that I feel that you you lose the potential to feel that you've learned something about the Doctor from it because it becomes and then it becomes a courtroom drama at the end and it tries to do a measure of a man and the whole thing sort of goes off the rails one way or another. So I don't know, I think it's a very it's an interesting trope, but it's one that is maybe hard to pull off but it is very popular i mean if you look you can go to tv tropes and pull up the list you know there are episodes, oh, yeah, several episodes of frasier that did it there's an episode mm. of er that did it there's episodes of uh you know i can't i can't remember i, I did have a quick look through and you, you know you, you'd be amazed at how many i think it's an episode of the simpsons that that did it it had a great line um that marge says to homer that they're going to go to japan or something and, and she says oh you know you you like japan you really enjoyed that film rashomon and he says oh that's not how i remembered it yeah it's it's very much a part of the kind of cultural landscape of of, of cinema and, and and 
certainly sort of 20th century storytelling, I suppose. And, and, you know, it does touch on these quite fundamental themes. As I say, you know, by the time you get to a play like Copenhagen, it's a fundamental existential crisis, almost sort of existential moral crisis uh, at the heart of sort of human subjective existence. I mean, this, that there, there is a kind of real weight potentially to this story. I don't think that's really where Star Trek is, is going with it in some way. I, th- I think, I think if, if Star Trek was to be braver about the, the consequences to the people involved, I think it could really pull it off fantastically well. I think that it's, it is a really good trope. It is, it is a, it's an overused trope, but it, it's persisted because it is, it can lead to some thrilling drama. It can lead to, like you say, some thrilling existential drama and can really make you, you know, wonder about what you're watching, who you're seeing, you know, and, and I think I just would like to see Star Trek be braver and really embrace it and really leave you do a true Rashomon story and leave you wondering at the end what, who, who was, what, what was true, what wasn't. And I think it would be very, it, like I said, it would be very timely and prevalent to do a story like that, be it in Discovery, be it in Picard or whatever is coming, all of the other shows to come and, and really test the audiences. Cause I, I think Star Trek could get away with it particularly now. I think, I think you could. You could have a story. I mean, you could have even potentially done it on Enterprise, you know, back back then. I think, I think you could have done it on any of these shows in some in some respects. But you had to be a bit bolder. And you know, you said, you know, they are they were episodic television, particularly of a specific time in the eighties and nineties, and it, it was a different time in terms of where you know character development and things like that. But I, I think there is scope for Star Trek to do a really powerful story like this, and to really make it work and and leave you either wondering about the characters or wondering about federation ethics or all kinds of things like that and I'd, i hope they do it one day and ds9 would be the show to do it i mean they they do have episodes great episodes that kind of touch on elements of kind of moral ambiguity i mean i'm thinking something like uh particularly around the occupation and stories like that i mean if you think of the episode where kira finds out about her mother's relationship with Ducat, for example mm. i feel like that's an episode that leaves certain things certain questions kind of unanswered yeah. to some degree yeah. you, you know it doesn't all tie it up in a bow it doesn't you know there is a sort of fundamental ambiguity to some degree about that relationship and about what's going on there i feel like even stories like the one where oh, there are two episodes and i always get them mixed up in my head but the, the, the one where odo discovers that kira actually was guilty of a crime that he he thought she was innocent of relative maybe it's, season two probably the evil is, is necessary evil or yeah. yeah i think so and then the other one is things one. past things past yeah they're episodes that sort of revel in the murkiness of it, I suppose. And sometimes you can have something where even if it is tied up at the end, the murkiness is what you remember, if you know what I mean. Uh, and I, and I think Star Trek can do that. And I think DS9 in particular did do that on various occasions. So I, I absolutely think, you, you know, who knows? Maybe it's time for a Discovery or the Picard show or, you know, some other, uh, Star Trek to, to do one of these. I suppose the problem is it does, it is quite, because it's, a concept it is quite an episodic yeah, concept in it a is sense, yes in that you would have trouble kind of stringing this out from week to week probably so i don't know whether it's something that we'll see coming back but you know it's it's definitely there, there's potential to do interesting things there it's a kind of on one level it is kind of a formal trick it is a bit um it is sort of high concept mm, mm. uh you know a little bit of a game on the mm. writer's part in some ways and, and there's a lot of pleasure that comes from that you know rewriting the same 
scene and, and reacting the same scene with with slightly different intentions and slightly different nuances and so on. But there is also something to say about that, I think. Um, and and maybe it's true that, you know, these two episodes, as, as much as, like you say, you know, we, we both like them well enough, that there is definitely scope for something that kind of taps that more, taps a, a richer vein within that, maybe. I think that's, you know, maybe that's one thing that we can all agree. Mm. Probably not. Maybe not. Uh, and if you disagree and, 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 you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe, you know, many people may, may disagree that there's anything wrong with these episodes and, and think that they're perfect. Uh, they, they may also think there are other examples where Star Trek does do exactly what we're saying that it should be doing. And I think the, you know, that may well be the case. I mean, I think, as I say, DS9 in particular does, uh, play in that kind of, sandbox of ambiguity mm. uh one way or another particularly if you think of you know characters like garrick yeah. or, or you know some of these kind of storylines and there are other storylines i mean we talked about a couple of voyager episodes i think there are other episodes of star trek that you could say touch on if not the kind of rashomon idea of kind of sort of bewildering subjectivity at least the idea of kind of unreliable yeah, storytelling and kind definitely. of um and how truthful or trustworthy certain accounts might be and and it's something that you know there's real scope there. i mean one thing i'd say that i think is successful about matter of perspective it's a clever idea to use the holodeck in that way and as far as the episode suggests it's just an idea that comes to picard off the top of his head you know no one's ever done this before he says to data could we do this i mean that's a pretty um bold piece of so that's thinking outside the box, if you know what I mean, to think, okay, we're going to recreate all these accounts and we're going to uh, replay them in front of us and we're going to be able to sort of interact with them, you know, even to the extent that literally we recreate something by accident that's going to blow up our ship if we're not careful. What I feel they missed a trick in the one of the strangest parts of the film, Rashomon, is the bit where the, the dead man is interviewed himself through a medium who sort of, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> you know, I was going to say impersonates, yeah. who, who kind of, you, you know, conjures up the dead man to give his... Yeah. And even his account is subjective, subjective and questionable. Whereas you might think, okay, all right, the dead man's the one person who's going to know how he ended up being dead and exactly what happened. I couldn't help thinking, because they, they do sort of do that in the next gen episode. They they have the assistant of the guy who's been murdered who uh, recreates what he told her happened to, to him but you know, obviously before the point where he was murdered uh, or wasn't murdered as the case may be. Um, but Picard is very scathing about it. He says, that's hearsay evidence. We can't, you know, we can't accept that. That's totally irrelevant, which sort of begs the question, like, how is that any different? Like everything they're presenting is hearsay evidence in a, in one sense, because it's, it's like he said, she said, you, you know, and this is just, he said he, or she said, he said, but you, you know, there's that sort of idea that it's not, this almost doesn't have a place here. I couldn't help thinking, you know, surely sci-fi is the one place where you could, you know, they could say, oh, we've, we've got his memory engrams on file. We can recreate, you know, we can bring him back from the dead to answer these questions. And interesting, I don't know if you've seen this, a new series on Netflix, um, which just debuted recently. I love this show. I'd be interested to know if anyone else has been watching it. Uh, almost all the reviews I've seen of it have, have hated it and everyone seems to think it's terrible. I thought it was brilliant. Um, it's a show with Katie Sackhoff from Battlestar Galactica. Oh, another, another Life. Life. I've heard and there's a terrible reviews, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay, yeah. look, maybe I'm just on another planet, <laughs> but I, I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so I'd be interested to know what you think, but there's a character in that and I don't know how to, to, to say what I'm going to say without slightly spoiling the first episode of this show. Oh, oh, there, there's a character who is not a lot, who you, you believe that you've seen the last of, yeah. uh, and who then returns in the form of a kind of computer-generated 
just like a hologram Mm. based on Mm. him, but so that people can ask questions of him relating to the in partly relating to the circumstances around his death Mm. and so on, and kind of what he was thinking and what was you know, and to kind of find out what would he say in this situation. So there's that weird idea of, of. you know, in this kind of sci-fi way, conjuring up the spirit of the dead almost, uh, you know, just as in Russian one, you've got this medium who conjures up the spirit of the dead man. I feel like that, you know, that that next-gen Mr. Trick in some ways by not not following that aspect and doing something really weird and uh, creepy with the holodeck and actually bringing back the guy to to give his account of what happened. But I suppose the problem is... Well, well, he would lie, probably, even if, well, I don't know. Then it creates this whole conceptual thing. If the computer's established, you know, if the computer's doing it and we know that there is a, like, he does actually know what happened. Well, he might not know what happened to him, but he knows all the stuff that he's been doing, dodgy dealings and, you mm. know, trying to uh, sell this thing to someone other than the Federation and but- make a profit and all this sort of thing. How, how do you not know? Do you know what I mean? What you've almost got the Troy problem of like too much transparency. Because on the one hand, with these stories, you've got like the the Copenhagen situation of like total fundamental existential uncertainty. On the other hand, you've got someone like Troy, who's supposed to be able to kind of read people's minds. And therefore, everyone is totally transparent. And certainly when it comes to things like whether they're lying or telling the truth or not, you know, even for Troy, they're, they're supposedly completely transparent. So you've kind of got these narrative problems, I suppose, whichever way you push it. But it's, it's interesting you say this about the holodeck and about about how this works because this is exactly what happens in living witness in that they, they yes they they activate the doctor unintentionally and they don't realize he's there but then the doctor is called upon to prove what he is saying is true to these disbelieving people who don't believe that their history was any different and he ha- he has to go into a holodeck and recreate these events and he says at one point that you know some of the technology is a bit you know I'm not quite sure about it so some of this might be a bit subjective it might not be completely on the level but he you know he, he has a good stab at creating obviously because it's star trek he basically creates them exactly as they were <laughs> you know not quite but you know he, he does he creates the what what he considers to be the actual event events but there are moments there are scenes where he wasn't there you know there's a scene where janeway's talking to um to the i can't remember the name of the the alien race or the character but the the first scene of the episode you see janeway evil Janeway, let's call her, having this conversation with this alien guy. And then you see what is supposedly the real events and she's normal Janeway and she's having this much more nice, friendly Federation conversation. But that's the doctor's, you know, assumption that that's what she'd be doing. You know, so, so there's, there's, he's in quite a lot of those scenes, but there are scenes where he's not. And you have to, you have to assume that the doctor's true and the doctor's getting all this right and it's factual. So in some senses, he is a bit of a, He's a fairly reliable narrator because he's a hologram and he's a machine and he's probably got better memory engrams and all this kind of thing to recall it. But at the same time, you have to go on a bit of faith. You know, you as the audience have to go on a bit of faith with the Doctor and he has to convince these guys, these alien these alien races to re- rethink their entire history and their entire 700 years. And he goes on and does that. But it, it's an interesting idea of using the holodeck and actually having this tool to you know, visualize these things as opposed to, you know, in Rashomon, it's all accounts, you know? And and, and again, in, in the rules of engagement doesn't use a, hol- a holodeck. I don't think, unless I'm wrong, they don't use a holodeck. And I know it's a different kind of story almost, but it, it is all about accounts. It's about testimonies. It's about people saying, well, you know, Wharf is this, Wharf is this. So, so you throw the holodeck in there, you've got a very different story, but I don't think it's quite been utilized yet to the best ability with, 
with this kind of Rashomon story. I think you could you could really do something very very interesting that casts doubt on people. And yes, it would it wouldn't have to carry forward into an arc necessarily into a story arc, but it could carry forward into a character arc. If you've got an event that happens, a murder or you know, an, a terrorist attack or whatever it is that happens, and then you see it from all these perspectives, and you're left at the end not quite sure if the hero is a hero, then you've got an interesting character arc to follow through that this Rashomon trope could have been well, part interestingly, of. Interestingly, I guess with rules of engagement, it's not just about exactly what happened because a lot of the testimony that's being given, it is almost more kind of character. They're, they're sort of character witnesses to some degree. Do you know what I mean? Especially someone like Dax. Mm. I mean, really, she's she's trying to speak to Worf's character and she's saying, look, we fight on the holodeck. He could break my neck. He doesn't. He's in control of stuff. Uh, and, then, and then there's this weird thing about almost like sort of violent computer games or something like that they go on this tangent about well at the end of this game doesn't he order that everyone gets slaughtered or whatever and she's like yeah it's just a it's a hollow program it's not real um but there's this kind of sense of like trying to get to know you know who wolf is like what are his values what sort of a man is he Mm. in a sense and Mm. apparently there was another section of that episode that was cut actually which was um kira's testimony and kira was going to give some kind of testimony about about sort of Worf's character and his honour and his behaviour and so on. And then her status as a character witness, I mean, I think this is interesting in terms of what we were saying about, you know, the kind of ambiguities that DS9 plays with that other Star Trek shows don't. Um, the Klingon then basically undermines her by revealing some sort of terrorist atrocity that she participated mm. in, in the resistance or something. So basically saying, you know, this is not, uh, we, we can dismiss this witness essentially because mm. she's not a reliable source of information so there's that kind of sense of how much do you and obviously you know we as as viewers of ds9 we basically do we do trust pretty much i mean other than maybe garrick and possibly quark (laughs) we do trust the character you know we trust someone like kira even as much as we occasionally might learn unpalatable facts about her past if you know what i mean we trust that she's a very Mm -hmm. honest decent good person but i suppose that the episode does sort of play into these ideas of kind of um you know, of the character, the character of these, of these people and the, and the kind of idea of a character witness. And really that's, you know, that's why in the pale moonlight, as you said, is, is so interesting is because it kind of, it's a chink in the armor of like who Cisco is in a sense, in that it is a kind mm. of, uh, a glimpse into his soul in a particularly tortured moment in a way. And, you know, it, it does sort of reevaluate to some extent, you know, who is this guy and what is he willing to do and what is he not willing to do? And it's it, certainly in a much more, a much deeper way than we get with Worf uh, in Rules of Engagement. And apparently Rules of Engagement was originally pitched as a Cisco episode. It was going to be a Cisco episode. And then someone had the idea to make it about Worf instead and kind of tie it into this kind of ongoing mm. Klingon storyline. Um, mm. And maybe, maybe it's tricky because the problem is, you know, maybe we do have too many assumptions about these characters. Maybe we do know that they're, we do know that Worf is so honourable and decent. He would never, you know, he mm. would never do something out of, I mean, he might get angry, but he would never do something that was completely unprincipled or no. morally wrong, if you know what I mean. Whereas, I don't know, in some ways, you know, DS9 has characters like Odo. I mean, Odo can do things that are quite shocking. I mean, if you, th- you think of, like, say, the old Odo who, um, in Children of Time, who, because he's obsessed with Kira, uh, condemns all those people to be out of existence, or even the way that Odo behaves when the station is occupied. You know, you do have characters in DS9 who can kind of surprise you with the way they behave in certain situations because they're not necessarily the kind of paragons that we're 
used to in Star Trek. Worf, on the other hand, is so straight down the line. He's such a kind of, um, uh, up, you know, honorable, upstanding, a sort of rule following. Do you know what I mean? Like, even if sometimes mm, his rules mm. are not necessarily the Starfleet rules, there's, there's kind of Klingon rules and stuff. He's, it's sort of almost inconceivable that he would do something wrong. Do you know what I mean? Maybe yeah, that's part exactly. of the problem. Maybe it would have been better yeah. if it was a character who you actually was slightly more doubtful about to begin Garrick. with. Garrick. Yeah. Well, yeah. If it, you know, if it was Garrick, then yeah, you'd have a great story because no, you know, you wouldn't believe a mm. word that he says or that anyone says about yeah. him or, you know, yeah. but then maybe, then, then maybe you do get into this kind of radical uncertainty where it's just like, well, what's the point? You know, who, who knows? Yeah. That, yeah. What, what, you know, yeah. he just lies all the time anyway. It doesn't, it almost doesn't mean anything. It would have to be a point about something broader. I think, yeah. you know, it would have to not be about Garrick whether Garak's lying or not, because we know he lies, it would have to be a broader storyline about something. And that, that's, where, that's where it differs. And that's where you didn't quite get those those stories in Star Trek, particularly in Deep Space Nine, where most stories angled on a character and would develop a character. You know, you occasionally had the sci-fi premise stories, you know, but most of the time there would be a character story in the heart of that plot. And this was a Worf character story in the heart of that plot. And it was more about Worf's nobility and his relation to the Klingon Empire than it was about objective, subjective truth. You know, so, so that's why it's not a, that's why it's not a perfect Rashomon story. And that's why it's, we haven't quite got that yet. So come on, Star Trek, give us it. (laughs) I'd love it. I'd love it now. Just do it, do it with one of these characters on, on a discovery. You know, do it with an Ash Tyler or someone like that. Someone who, is a bit dodgy. You know, a bit, we're yeah. not 100% sure about. We, we need more of these dodgy characters. That's the answer. And I, th- I think we're getting more of them. I mean, we, yeah. you know, we had it to some degree with Lorca until we discovered he was the kind of moustache twirling mm. villain of the mirror universe. Yeah. We had this, yeah. we had this sense of here was a guy who, you know, was a little bit untrustworthy. Do you know what I mean? And I think there's definitely something mm, interesting mm. and quite compelling about that. So maybe that's something we will see going into the future. Mm. Um, well, I think we, hopefully we can, uh, one thing we can both agree on is that it was fun talking about um, Rashomon and talking about these episodes. I'm not sure. No, I'm not sure. Right, okay. I've got my <laughs> well, own we'll, truth we'll have with to this. Agree to disagree and we'll, and we'll, you know, open the conversation out on the Babel conference to anyone who, who wants to join in and, 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 Give us your opinions. All, all, all opinions are, are, are welcome, very much welcome and, and great to continue the conversation there. But this is not the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. So here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. Is this the Supernatural Klingon episode? What is this going to be? And then it just turns out to go in, you know, go in and you know, dig your own time crystals, State Park. I mean, it's <laughs> like, okay... I, well, Larry, again, you know, he, you, he you, you go it. in there and you there's a like a, a basket type thing there and you, you put in your 10 quat lose and mm-hmm. you get 60 minutes to dig your time crystal. Darsex. Darsex. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, the Klingons want Darsex, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you go in and actually however many time crystals you can dig in 60 minutes, you get to keep. But the catch is they're time crystals. So 60 minutes to one person is only a minute to someone else. Literary treks. Uh, we have the conversation between Pike and the, uh, the Star, Starfleet Admiral Terrell uh, about the specifics of why they were kept out of the war. This is even before we're in a situation where they have no choice but to stay out of the war. They couldn't go back if they wanted to. By, you know, sort of 
setting up the, the, the milestones in the story for this is about when this is happening during season one. Uh, you know, that allows us to tell our own independent story within that. But yet also, you'll always know where you are in the regular TV show. Earl Grey. That question about whether life exists, either yes, it does, because like enough time has elapsed and there's enough planets out there, or no, it doesn't, because we are that race. Oh, <laughs> that seeds life yeah. elsewhere in the universe. At the some the point other in the answer future. is it did, but they all destroyed themselves. You know, but that's that's also kind of unlikely that you'd have lots of civilizations all doing the same thing and destroying themselves. I think, but to the journey. <laughs> the that's all I could think about with that this one. Is, this is the Seinfeld in space episode. I keep waiting for Elaine to show up. I'm trying to think of what Jerry Seinfeld would say in Jerry Seinfeld's tone of voice inside this episode. Can you do? Can you do, can you do a good Jerry Seinfeld? Oh, good grief! No, not even close. I'm trying to think how I would approach doing a Jerry Seinfeld impersonation. It's not coming to me. <laughs> He's got that super high pitched da 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 kind of. I don't know. Kind yeah. of voice. Well, that you did really well. The da 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 da. So yeah, there you go. Why don't they just warp out of here? <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at, at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at, at Clara Jean MC and Tony at, at AJ Black Writer. You're blended all right.